Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. My name is Grace Ratley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Stacy Horner. Stacy is co-director for the Duke University School of Medicine Center for RNA Biology, as well as associate professor. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you for having me, Grace. I'm excited to have you on the podcast. So can you tell us a little bit about your research on flaviviruses? Yeah, so my lab studies virus-host interactions, and so what that means is that we're really interested in how viruses infect cells, how cells sense these viral infections, and then how the cells in our body fight back to viruses, and then how viruses try to get around that immune response. And so, as you mentioned, we do this in the context of viruses in the Flaviverida family. So that includes viruses like hepatitis C virus, dengue virus, Zika virus, West Nile virus, all viruses that many of you may have heard of before. And I'll mention that these are positive strand RNA viruses. So they're very similar in some respects to SARS coronavirus 2, which is the virus that's causing the current COVID-19 outbreak, which also has a positive sense RNA genome. And so fundamentally, you know, what we're learning and how we study how these flaviviridae viruses interact with the cells in our body are principles that can actually go beyond just these viruses because many RNA viruses or viruses in general interact with cells in the same way. Can you tell us a little bit about hepatitis C in particular? So hepatitis C does have an effective treatment. So why is it important for us to continue studying this virus? Yeah, so hepatitis C virus, as you know, we have great direct acting antivirals to this virus that can actually cure the virus. So unlike HIV, which when you're infected, it goes into kind of like a latent state and heads out of your body, we can eliminate HCV from people. So that's very exciting. And in fact, the scientists who discovered aspects of hepatitis C virus um, infection and how to cure it were actually just won the Nobel Prize in last year. And so the reason why it's important to study this virus, even though it's already cured, are two big reasons. The first is that there's actually no vaccine, so we can't prevent infection. And one of the largest sources of new HCV infections every year is through IV drug users. And in fact, at least a year or two ago, the number of new infections per day was equivalent to the number of people being cured from the virus. And so the only way to actually eliminate the virus is to prevent infection, and we really need a vaccine for that. And so while my lab isn't studying the immune responses that would lead to a functional vaccine, there are many labs that are doing this, and I think having a vaccine to prevent infection by HCV is something that we really need. So that's one reason why people in general should still study it. But for my lab, we like to study this virus because it interacts with our host cells in a lot of interesting ways. And by understanding how this virus interacts with our host cells or causes infection, we could actually learn general principles about how viruses can cause disease. And so we can use this virus as a model virus to learn how these things happen and then compare and contrast to other viruses to see if it's similar or different. And you mentioned that some of the RNA biology is similar in both flaviviruses as well as coronavirus-19. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you've found so far? Yep. So the most important thing that's similar is that their genomes are what we call a positive sense polarity. And so that means when the virus infects a cell, the viral capsid uncoats, the viral RNA gets into the cell, 
And immediately that RNA is translated to make the viral proteins. For both viruses in the Flavivirida and for coronaviruses in general, the first thing that needs to happen is that the viral RNA-dependent RNA polymerase gets made, and this viral protein can then replicate the viral RNA to make more copies. Actually, in the viral RNA-dependent RNA polymerase is a big drug target for hepatitis C virus. Some of our drugs that are in the clinic are used to that. And you could imagine that for coronaviruses, it would be a similar type of idea. One major difference between the two viruses, and this is why actually there isn't a drug that targets the coronavirus RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, is that the coronavirus, because its genome is very large, so its RNA genome is 30 kilobases long, whereas viruses in the Flavivirida family are around 10 kilobases long. So it's three times bigger. And so because of that, when the viral polymerase copies the genome, it makes many errors, right? And the longer your genome, the more errors that you can make. And so coronaviruses actually encode a proofreading enzyme that can fix mistakes. And many times in virology, we want to target the polymerase, but actually in coronaviruses, it could maybe fix mistakes that happen because they also include what we call an exonuclease that can help to repair the genome. So I think that actually the exonuclease might be a, a good molecule to target in coronaviruses. And in fact, a new paper came out, I think today, sharing the crystal structure of that protein of the virus. So that's very exciting for, for people who study coronaviruses. So how do you think the pandemic has changed the way that people think about the field of virology as a whole? Right. So I think it depends on who you ask, as we all know. So in my family, I'm very popular right now because a lot of my family has a lot of questions, like probably many of us do, about how the virus works. How do you get it? What's safe? What's not? And the fun part about being a virologist is that I actually read the scientific papers. And so I know the data in the papers and what seems right and what's not. And one of the interesting things in the last year is that the media has been covering the virus a lot. And sometimes they don't, aren't able to quite capture the nuance of science, right? And so sometimes I look at a paper and I come to a conclusion and then I read a news article and they come to a different conclusion. And so um, that's been something that's been pretty interesting. And for my family, as we're trying to all make decisions to keep us safe, I've actually relayed some of like, well, I know that's what the article said, but this is kind of what I think based on the data in this paper. And so if we go to a broad level now, a lot of people are what we might call armchair virologists, which is kind of exciting to have new people from other fields interested in how viruses work. We've made a lot of progress in only about a year, which is really remarkable, right? We didn't even know what the virus, and now we have a vaccine that's in like at least half the people over 18 in the United States, right? So I think that's very exciting. One of the hard things, one of the challenges has been that many people think they know everything about virology and they come in from a different field. And there's actually a pretty well-established coronavirus literature. And so I know from some of my colleagues who are coronavirologists, they've sometimes been a little bit irritated if people don't know the literature. So that's in like the scientific sphere. But if we go to like a global sphere, a lot of people say, well, I am really good at predicting these things. I am really good at epidemiology. I am really smart generally. And so I want to tell you how we can cure this virus. <laughs> I think we can all appreciate everyone's efforts to come together on this. Um, sometimes you wish that people would spend a little bit more time preparing and actually going to the experts who really do know what's happening. 
The advantage of people from outside is we get more creative solutions. The disadvantages is they have to get up to speed. And for someone who's been studying viruses for 20 years, that's a lot of speed to catch up to, right? Yes, certainly. We had a person on the podcast recently who was using CRISPR-based technologies for COVID diagnostics, which was a really exciting new development. They'd been using it to try and diagnose other conditions. And when the pandemic started, they quickly jumped in and helped out there. Can you think of uh, some of the more exciting technological advances that have come as a result of people entering the field of virology from other fields? Yeah, so I think one that is pretty exciting, and I I don't actually know the people who did the work, but I'm sure we can find the publication for the listeners, is novel methods to detect coronavirus infection. So currently, you have to do like a PCR test, which takes a while, is expensive. You can do an antigen test, which is much cheaper. I read a report of a study that can actually take the air that people are breathing and then do mass spec on the air. I think it's mass spec to identify the exact molecular weights of the things that are in that air, and it could actually detect the virus. This is super cheap. You could put it in like train stations. I thought that was really cool. So that's like some of the really cool technology that you wouldn't have expected. And I think a lot of this comes from, you know, maybe people in the engineering world. And then, you know, the other big thing for my field that I think is very exciting is the fact that the COVID vaccine is the first mRNA based vaccine that has gone into people and been approved for this kind of global use. It's emergency authorized, right? So while a lot of the technology for mRNA vaccines has been around for a really long time, it wasn't until right now that, you know, we have to make a vaccine really fast. What are we going to do? They kind of had done all the research over the years to be ready right for this moment. And the fact that it works so well and so quickly is very exciting because that means that then we can use this technology for any future pandemic for a lot of other diseases or viral infections. I would say from my point of view, the fact that you could go from not knowing a virus to get an FDA approved vaccine in people in a year, I actually did not think it was possible. And it actually was, which is really exciting. Yeah, it is. It's so exciting. So one of the things that I've always wondered about is why did it take us like a pandemic to get these things to market? Like, what do you think is the difference? Yeah, so it was really an accelerated timeline, a lot of resources put into it and an urgent need. So if you talk to people who work for companies and do clinical trials, a clinical trial is very expensive. And you start with your phase one, which is a small safety trial. Then you start with a phase two, which is like a little more safety, a little more efficacy. And then you go to phase three. And these will often be spread apart by several years as they review the data. Think about as a company, what strategy do you want to go after? Can we raise the funds for the phase three trial, which is very expensive? And so in this particular case, they just did all those back to back to back and just kind of, they didn't do a lot of the optimization that goes through, like, what is the right dosing? There was a little bit of that, but not as much as was normally done. And they just had to say, like, let's go for it. And so because the vaccines had the support from the federal government, they could actually take the risk to go through all the trials, right? Because they're very expensive. If you fail, you just kind of lose all that money. But because the government guaranteed either partnered or was willing to buy the doses, that really took that risk out of the picture for, for those companies. So I think that was the big thing. And also that the other big thing that I would say like from a virology point of view is that the pandemic was still ongoing. And so you could actually do the clinical trials. 
you might remember a few years ago in 2016, there was Zika virus pandemic. And in fact, there were Zika virus vaccine candidates, even mRNA vaccine candidates. But the Zika pandemic pretty much died out. And so you had a vaccine, but you had no way to test its efficacy. And so in this particular case, we are still testing a lot of efficacy. And so you need enough study participants to do the trial. You have to recruit them. And in this case, we had so many people that you could recruit for a study. It was actually able to, you know, get your endpoints, you know, which is how effective is it in a controlled setting, you know, with a match control group. So I think that was very exciting. And one of the reasons we were able to accelerate is, you know, support from the government, financial backing, the urgent need, and having a huge study population. So do you think there will be long-lasting changes in the way that the government interacts and and funds virology research or medical research in general? We would hope so. Others may know that as a professor at a medical school, one of the things I have to do is raise grant money, right? Write grants to get money to fund our research. So the school doesn't give us the money for that. They support us, but we have to get the money from the government. My my dad always says this should make getting grants easier for you. But, you know, you you wish it would be the case. I think the NIH has always had a commitment to funding virology, but there are other diseases that are really important too. And so it's really uh, kind of the budget isn't large enough for the research that we really need. And so I've heard from people in Congress who've talked about actually almost all Congress folks, senators are supportive of biomedical research and increasing funds, but there's just not enough money to go around. I think that one of the biggest lessons we learned this year is funding basic science is important. So the technology that led to the mRNA vaccines came from basic science and a key discovery that was made in 2004, 2005. And you wouldn't have realized how important that was you know, I don't want to predict, but I, I imagine they'll get a Nobel Prize for it. Actually, that would be my prediction. So basic science is important. All science is important. And fundamentally, we need to just increase our funding for all sciences, you know, kind of my take. Hopefully, a lot of people have realized the importance of funding basic science from this pandemic. So the other thing that I want to say about funding science is I think that this pandemic has really also shared with us the lack of a public health infrastructure in the United States. We used to have a strong public health infrastructure, but in this case, when a new virus came out, we should have known what to do. We should have had a plan, and there really wasn't. And that's because things like epidemiology, your local, county, small-town public health departments have been underfunded a lot in, let's say, the last 10, 15 years. And so I think you need to keep those things funded because, you know, on every day you might not need them, but when you need them, you really need them. People like to listen to people in their communities rather than the federal government. And so funding these kind of pandemic preparedness at the local level, I also think is really important. Yeah, I so I was a public health major in college. And one of the things I was super surprised to find was that if there was some sort of like Ebola outbreak in a particular place, the people in charge would be the local public health officials, like it wouldn't be the federal government coming in. It's not like the FBI takes over, you know, a criminal case or something. It's those local governments leading that response. So yeah, I would I would have to definitely agree with you that investing in those infrastructures is very important. So if you were to put yourself in the shoes of the people who are deciding where funding goes, if you had maybe a million dollars to give, what sorts of research efforts would you be most excited to invest in? 
So first of all, uh, I would say that a million dollars is enough to fund three people for five years. So we actually need to go like a hundred million dollars. But I think one of the biggest problems actually in our biomedical scientific enterprise is the lack of diversity in science. And so this means black and brown or people of color really need to be better funded We know that there's data that the grant peer review process is actually quite biased in a number of different ways. And we also know that diverse teams are more successful. And so, you know, not only from like an ethical point of view, but from actually how are we going to solve problems as a, as a country, as a world? How do we fight the next pandemic? We need people from every walk of life to see scientists that look like them, to want to become scientists and to bring their creativity, their energy and their communities, you know, to the table. And so if I had a lot of money, I would use all of the existing research that has been done by a lot of my colleagues around the country into this space and change policy to fund black and brown scientists. What sorts of policies would you change? Would it be maybe replacing the people who are deciding where the money goes or would it be educating them or what kinds of changes are needed to drive that increase in diversity? You know, this is not my area of expertise, so I'm not going to presume to know the, the right answers. But I think there has to be a real commitment from the NIH to not just talk about changing these problems, but to do bold solutions. And so they have advisory committees with the right people on them who can help them make these decisions. I think, you know, the peer reviewers of the grants are people like me we're trained in such a way to value certain things in the grant review process that will disadvantage certain groups. We all know this. So, you know, it needs to be led by people on the review panel saying like, hey, those wordings that you use, they're actually not okay. Like, that's not what we're looking for when we're looking for good science. And and that's kind of risky. So, you know, in the review process, you do that. You could also just commit to funding more people of color. Everyone will say like, oh, well, we want the science to be a certain quality. Trust me, the quality's good. <laughs> it's not a problem of that. It's about the structures in place are biased of judging what is good science or not good science. And so I think that's the problem. At an institutional level, we need to hire more people of color, but not only do we need to hire them, we need to make them feel supportive, give them mentoring, treat them as colleagues, not as people who can you know, make our quota of having more people in the pictures, And so access to mentoring, not overburdening them with service and thinking about our promotion criteria. So someone like me, I just got tenure, so I'm now an associate professor, but I went through that process. That whole process is biased and favors certain things that will be disadvantaged um, by other people who do not fit into the mold of what a scientist or what publishing should look like. Many of us know what's wrong. It's pretty bold move that it changed that system. And I think that's what really needs to happen. Do you think that sort of change would take a long time? Or do you think it would need to be something like, kind of like what we saw in the last year with the Black Lives Matter movement, where it's just like intense social support moving towards a single goal? Yeah, so I think some things are easy and some things are harder. You're not going to change everyone's mind. That's not why you do it, right? I think those kinds of things could be harder, but there are easy things you could do. For example, when people are coming up for tenure, have them talk about their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Make white people do some of that work too. (laughs) That's like something that actually costs zero money. It takes time, but I think that we should be giving that time. 
So yes, mentoring programs, they don't actually cost that much money. Fundamentally, I think we should just hire more black people, more brown people as assistant professors, but then also support them. And so that means every institution needs to take a hard look at how they have supported people like this. What do they do to help them get tenure? Because processes like promotion, or even if you're a PhD student, right, like graduation, those are all biased and they're geared towards actually a white male demographic, which is kind of historically how it was. But that doesn't mean that it's right. And that doesn't mean that we should be still be doing that. So kind of changing gears a little bit, I'd like to get into what inspired you to become a scientist. And when you were growing up, were you always really interested in science? So when I was a child, I was always interested in how things work. I remember my mom had a book, How Things Work. I just wanted, I was like, that's cool. I want to learn a little bit more about that. I always hated science class in school because it just seemed really boring and like memorization of facts. So I actually never wanted to be a scientist per se from a young age, but I was curious about how things work. I have a very defining moment, which is when, I don't know what year it came out, but um, it has to do with the movie Jurassic Park. I think I was probably a junior in high school, somewhere around that time. I remember riding the car with my dad, and my dad liked to listen to NPR. And NPR was playing a show about the movie Jurassic Park. So I hadn't read the book yet, but I was listening to this podcast, or not podcast, I didn't have podcasts, this radio show about Jurassic Park. And they were talking about, you know, the whole premise of Jurassic Park is that these people could recreate dinosaurs and that there was amber and that contained fossilized mosquitoes. You could extract the DNA because the mosquito had bit the dinosaur, pull out the dinosaur DNA and then do, you know, some kind of magic basically to make a dinosaur. Well, when I heard about the science behind that, and there must have been some scientists talking about it, I just thought that was the coolest thing that I'd ever heard. You could go from like DNA to making a whole animal or an organism. So I went back to my high school teacher and I asked him, you know, DNA, like, I guess I missed that day in biology class because like, I want to study DNA. Like, what is that field called? And he said, biochemistry, like chapter 24. So I opened it up and had a picture of DNA. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be a biochemistry major. It really was as simple as that. And um, probably as naive as that, to be honest, that from then on, that's what I wanted to do. I pretty much didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what being a scientist would be like. One of my grandpas was a chemistry professor at a small school in Minnesota. So in theory, like I should have understood what that meant. <laughs> but, you know, I thought maybe pre-med, biochemistry, I'm not sure. When I got into college, I realized I didn't want to do pre-med because I was really interested in the small little things like nucleic acids. And so I didn't want to study bones or the body. I wanted to get like right into those details. and like, how do they work? Like, how do molecules find each other? That sounds really cool. So that was why I wanted to be a scientist. You know, the reason why I wanted to be a virologist is not as clear to me, although I do know that my first or second year in college, I'm from Minnesota. I went to a small liberal arts college there called Gustavus Adolphus College. And every year at Gustavus, they hold something called a Nobel Conference. Gustavus is a Swedish Lutheran college. I'm not Swedish, but that's the school I went to. And so they have an affiliation with the Nobel Foundation in Sweden that helps them put on a really large conference for a very small liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota. And this particular conference is on viruses. So they brought in all these world-leading virologists. 
to the conference to talk about virology. And I'm assuming that that's what really piqued my interest. Because after that point, I knew I wanted to be a virologist. And before that, I don't have any memory of that. And, you know, then, so why did I want to be a virologist? It was cool to me that viruses can go into cells, change cell biology, and not only help you learn about the viruses, but also help you learn about the cells that they infect. So a lot of key discoveries in biology had been made by using viruses as tools to study this biology. I thought that was really cool. And that's why I wanted to do it. Yeah, I totally get that. Viruses are like, they're just little machines. They're very interesting. So when you were pursuing virology, were there any moments where you were like, this isn't at all what I expected or like your expectations versus reality when it came to what being a scientist meant? So I did my PhD at Yale. And while I was a graduate student at Yale, I definitely, like many graduate students, struggled at some level mostly because I felt like I wasn't good enough to be a scientist or to be a professor. From a young age, I actually always wanted to be a teacher. And so being a professor to me seemed like the career path that I would want to choose. And I remember going to seminars or going to research and progress talks by other graduate students and thinking, wow, their science is so much cooler than mine. They're so much smarter than I am. And then you hear all about how, like, it's really hard to get a grant. It's really hard to be a professor. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not smarter than, like, these five people I know. So I'll never be able to be a professor. I'll never get the grant. And so that was kind of really disheartening. You know, you could do all this work and then try to get a job as a professor. You would never get one. And that seemed like a little too risky for me. It made sense to finish the PhD. Like, and for all students out there, I would say if you can stick it out, it makes sense to stick it out. There are obviously cases when that doesn't make sense. And so I'm not going to speak to all situations. But having a PhD can open a lot of doors. And when I thought about what I really wanted to do, I thought like being a virus hunter sounds cool. I want to travel the world and, and do that. And so I was already working on my application to try to get into the Johns Hopkins public health program for people with a PhD. And then maybe work for the CDC or the WHO as a virus hunter. So I was putting that application together. Sounded cool. Now I'm really glad I didn't do that because it actually is like a lot less glamorous than you see it in the movies. However, I was putting my application together and I was talking to some of my committee members and then to my graduate advisor who really convinced me that I had what it takes to be a scientist and to be a professor, which is something I hadn't seen in myself. I just thought I was so different than all the people I'd seen as science professors. I was so different than my classmates who were like, I want to be a PI. Like, I want to do that. I'm like, I, I don't look like you. I don't do the same things you do. It just, it didn't seem like it was something that I could do or would be able to be part of that community. Until my graduate advisor really uh, stepped up and said, Stacey, you have what it takes. And also one of my committee members. And so I'll name them here. So um, Dan DeMeo at Yale is my PhD advisor. And he was the one who really believed in me, as well as my one of my committee members, Peter Lingyell, who has now passed away. And so the two of them said, you know, try postdoc. See if you like it. Do one year. And if you don't like it, we'll write you a letter for, for anywhere you want. But we think you have what it takes. 
actually right after that, it was very clear to me that I wanted to go do a postdoc and then keep going on in science, the academic track, because actually I think science is cool. I'm curious. I like thinking about that. I still didn't know if I was creative enough to be like a cool, innovative scientist. But one thing that I say to all students and I I realize is that by about year four of my postdocs after my PhD, I realized that I was creative. I had a lot of good ideas. And so, you know, college student, first year graduate student, first year postdoc, you don't have to know if you have what it takes. You just have to be curious and want to try. You don't have all the information, I think, to make the decision to pull yourself out of the running. Now, if you don't want to do that, that's cool. But if you think you might want to do, you know, try to find a mentor who could really talk to you about what the whole process was like for them. Because a lot of people will have a story somewhat similar to mine, especially with women. We often have very different stories on like the kind of classic path. Everyone who thinks that they might want to do it owes themselves to find, try to find a mentor who can help encourage them along the way. So what do you think are the best qualities of a mentor? How can mentors better support their students to instill confidence in them or maybe a realistic view of themselves? So I think if you're a trainee, you should not think about only having one mentor, but having multiple mentors. And these mentors will help you in all aspects of your career. And ideally, you want to feel comfortable enough talking to them and being honest with them because they can only help you if they know what's going on inside that brain of yours. And so you might have mentors that help you. For example, for me, that could be a mentor who looks like me. So that can be helpful. It can be helpful to have a mentor who's at in your research area that you're interested in. It can also be important to have a mentor that has a career like you have. So those are all things that one can look for in what we might call a mentoring team. Now, things that mentors can do to help training as well, I actually just took uh, six hours of mentor training um, and we learned a lot of things, but I would say the biggest problems between a mentor and a mentee are ineffective communication. And so as a mentor, understanding that communicating with your mentee is important, the words that you use matter, and that our job as a mentor is not to get them to be you, but to help them assess their skills and figure out what they want to do based on their skills. And so I think those are effective mentors. And for mentees, I mean, be open, be able to communicate, and also tell your mentor what you need. As a mentor, I really want my mentees or, you know, people that I interact with even in class to succeed, but, you know, I can't read your mind. (laughs) So um, it's important, I think, for the mentees to, you know, tell their mentor how they're feeling and for mentors and to learn skills to bring out the things that they need to help them be effective mentors. So you've, you've been at a few different universities. So you've been at a small liberal arts college. You went to Yale for graduate school, and then you moved to Duke. So what are some of the biggest differences that you've seen in the different cultures between those universities and some of the things that you like about being at Duke? I think Duke and Yale are very similar in a lot of respects, to be quite honest. I did a postdoc at University of Washington in Seattle, and that was very different. It's a public state school, so that's bigger, less personalized. And then a big difference between Duke and Yale is that Yale is a much older institution than than Duke is. So fundamentally, there are some kind of differences related to that. But I like being at Duke. And one of the reasons I also kind of like being at Yale is that they're a little bit smaller. And so this is also related to kind of my undergrad, which is small liberal arts college. 
is that it's much easier, I think, as a faculty and probably as a student to find different types of communities and interface beyond just your department into like the whole community. So, you know, like I could go to like an English lecture or a history lecture just because I thought that was interesting. So I really like that, this kind of smaller aspect. I also really like about Duke is how collaborative and interdisciplinary the university is. It'll be quite common for me to be, you know, talking to someone in the biochemistry department, the chemistry department, immunology. And I think this is uh, really exciting. When I first came to Duke now, like back eight years ago or something like that, there were actually a lot of new assistant professors that were hired at that time. And so as a new professor, then I kind of had all these like friends. I didn't know that I would be friends with other professors, but I certainly am. And so that's fun because we all go through the same career challenges. But then like inevitably we get to talking about science or some new technique. Then you can build like real collaborations and do cool discoveries together. So I think at a place like Duke, that is pretty easy. The pandemic has changed a lot of that. So for the new assistant professors who started in the last year or so, this is going to be one of the big challenges to helping them find that community in the next couple of years as they kind of do what I already did. Do you think a lot of the remote aspects of doing work, like maybe working from home a couple of times a week, will be maintained? I mean, I think some of them will. For example, certain kinds of meetings are really easy to have remotely. Everyone's really comfortable with that. Having these Zoom meetings with colleagues all across the country a few years ago, I mean, people did it, but it wasn't super popular. Now, I think that would be pretty easy to kind of happen. School-wide things, you can certainly do something over Zoom fairly easy, like a training of some kind. But I do think that the real personal connection or the things that happen, you know, when you're getting coffee, the people you run into, who you just casually talk with, those things will still be important in the future. I think one other thing that the pandemic has really taught us is the importance of having structures to promote or support people who have children. You actually can't work from home if you're also having children at home for school. It's just like not possible. And so I think, you know, those kinds of challenges and how we support folks with children, you know, pre-tenure with their grants at that at the university level. And I think universities need to really support these things. That's a, has caused a huge difference in like people's productivity. Some people's productivity went way up, some people's way down, right? I hope that all universities are taking a hard look at their finances and giving support to those folks. So as we wrap up, I always like to ask uh, the people who come on the podcast if they would have advice for people who might be trying to walk in the career path that you did. I know you've given a little bit here, but could you maybe say a few words to students who there may be plenty uh, now who have become interested in virology? What advice would you give to them as they go forward? So I think from the beginning, I will tell you that there's no one right way to be a scientist or to be a virologist. You don't have to do it like I did it. You don't have to do it like the person next to you. If you're curious, just keep trying to go one step farther. Along the way, I think it's really important to find people who will support you and who will be mentors for you. This was really hard for me when I was coming through the system. Certainly I had them, but I don't think I use them as much as I I do now. And I wish I had my whole career because I think that would have been helpful. 
I would say just be curious, go to what is interesting to you. You don't have to try to predict what will be trendy or popular or important. If you like the science, you'll find a way to make it important one one day or you'll leave. And so you want to do something that is cool to you and that can motivate you because I think we all want to be happy in our jobs. And if you don't love what you do, then you should get another job. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on virology and on scientific culture, if you will. Yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Grace. And for everyone who's listening, if you're not vaccinated, please get vaccinated.